I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC. Generation BSC, as you might know, is a episodic revisiting of every book in the Babysitter's Club in order, you know, week by week, I guess bi-weekly, bi-weekly, is that <laughs> bi-weekly? Is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm using that correctly, but every other week we post a new episode about the Babysitter's Club. This one could potentially be <laughs> maybe a little out of order. As you may or may not know at this point, our last episode was supposed to be Christy and the Secret of Susan, which, as you may recall from our predictions, Lauren and I had no real ideas about. We both obviously had our predictions, but it turns out that we did not recall at all what that book was about, um, as it turns out that Secret that Susan's secret is that she is autistic. And as we got into reading and planning to record that episode, we both realized we were way out of our depth. We had not enough knowledge to really do that conversation justice. So we are taking some time to find the right people to talk to with us about autism and that book. And we're hoping for a really great episode, but we didn't want to hold up our production. So Lauren, I don't know if you have anything to add about The Secret of Susan or our plans going forward, but feel free to jump into. <laughs> I will just say that, I mean, we'll definitely talk about this in the episode, mm-hmm. but we, for a hot minute, it seems like Kate's prediction may have been correct. And then very quickly, <laughs> it, uh, it, it things took a turn. And I, I, I think I wasn't even at the end of the first chapter when I went, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, my, <laughs> my, my notes actually was my first say, reaction, oh, so. no. <laughs> So I think yep. we we definitely were on the same page about uh, not really being ready to have a conversation on that topic. But we've reached out to a number of people, and we are so excited. We're, we're going to be having some really, really great conversations that we can't sh- wait to share with all of you. So in the meantime, so we could stay on schedule and not hold things up too much, we decided to go ahead and skip over The Secret of Susan and talk about this week's book, Claudia and the Great Search. because. Typically speaking, of course, except for in our last two episodes, there isn't a ton of, you know, book to book plot development that needs to happen. Um, the one really like plot development thing that happens in The Secret of Susan is the arrival of the Hobart family. And they don't get mentioned in this one at all. So we um, are just going to move ahead and talk about this week's book. So this week's book is Claudia and the Great Search. It's book number 33. Um, Lauren, I don't know if you wanted to have any sort of general conversation about the book or if we just wanted to dive right into the back so we can then move on to the greater conversation. But I don't really have anything before we get into that. Yeah, I would say that this one isn't – I like there was no oh no at the beginning of chapter <laughs> <laughs> chapter one. So I don't think there's like an overarching thing that we need to get into ahead of time. So let's just take it to the back of the book. It's no secret that Claudia and her sister are different. For one, they don't look alike at all. Claudia loves her wild clothes and funky jewelry, and Janine dresses, well, kind of nerdy. Janine is a genius, and Claudia brings home C's, when she's lucky. Claudia opens the family photo album to see what she and her sister looked like when they were little, but there are hardly any baby pictures of Claudia. And when she goes searching for her birth certificate and birth announcement in the newspaper, Claudia can't find them. Is Claudia Kishi who she thinks she is, or has she been adopted? So that definitely captures Claudia's level mm-hmm. of drama around this, which I, I think is fair. I 
I think overall that captures the the tone of the book. It certainly captures the main plot pretty well. But why don't you fill us in on the details that we need to remember before we get into our great ideas? That sounds like a plan. Although one thing I do have to point out, the back of the book description ends with a question, but it has an exclamation point at the end. And that grammar just frustrates me. <laughs> you, I mean, you said it as a question because it is a question and it was also a surprise question. But like, throw in that question mark exclamation point back of the book author. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love the question mark exclamation point combo. I think mm-hmm. that's so, I don't know. I don't, I have, I, I don't know what it's so, but it, it works for me in my tone mm-hmm. of voice pretty regularly. So it's, it's definitely, yeah, you're right. That's how I read it. I didn't even really, I just sort of ignored grammar. <laughs> As an English major, grammar and punctuation were never my strong suits. <laughs> like, I just do my own thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Literary analysis was much more my speed. So go figure. That's why we're talking about that and not the editing of, of the book. Exactly. Mostly. Okay. Well, then I'll just jump from punctuation shenanigans into the our description or my description of the book. So the Claudia-specific plot. Claudia focuses on the significant differences between her and Janine, again, and after looking at photo albums of her family when they were younger and finding significantly fewer pictures of her as a baby and young child than there are of Janine, and influenced by all the discussion of Emily Michelle joining Christie's family, Claudia decides she must be adopted and starts a search through her house. She finds she decides a lockbox in a desk is clear evidence of her adoption, because certainly the adoption papers must be in there, and spends about a week stressing about it before she finally tells Stacey of her concerns. Stacy is a supportive best friend and tells her about a book she finds at the Perkins's house about an adopted girl searching for her birth mother and acting as a sounding board through Claudia's research. Claudia uses the book as inspiration for her plan, which involves her calling Emily Michelle's adoption agency, trying to find her birth certificate, visiting her pediatrician, looking for her birth announcement using microfiche to the library, calling the families who had daughters born the same week that she was born, since she couldn't find her own announcement and assumes she must be one of those girls, and ultimately deciding she's found her birth mother by process of elimination. Stacy finally tells Claudia she needs to just talk to her parents, which leads to a quintessential Danny Tanner moment where they explain everything and show her pictures of Mimi as a girl who looks exactly like Claudia's twin. Claudia also spends some time, mostly off-screen, tutoring Emily Michelle to help her improve her two-year-old skills like color, shapes, and counting to help her get accepted to preschool for the fall. So the Babysitter's Club-specific plot. The BSC is mostly out of the picture here, other than Stacy supporting Claudia and Christy lamenting that she can't spend more time with and helping Emily Michelle due to a month-long regular babysitting gig with the Papadakises. Dawn plays a supporting role in raising concerns about Emily Michelle when she doesn't catch on to how to play Ring Around the Rosie, and Christy has a nice sitting job for David Michael that ends with Bart Taylor walking her home. Also, we get some kind of foreshadowing about Stacy's health issues, as lately she's been really tired and run down and has lost some weight. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty pretty straightforward book, I would say. Yeah, I mean, pretty straightforward, like the back of the book as well. Definitely much more of an emphasis on Claudia. Mm-hmm. I overall had kind of mixed feelings on this one. I, I definitely think that this is a very quintessential, uh, you know, adoption plot, feeling like the outsider in your family. This is a story that, you know... I think it's been on every sitcom. You know, there's tons of books with that sort of premise. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just such a common, like, childhood trope. But it just seemed um, 
inevitable that we'd sort of get this one. I remembered it more as it as it came back to me. But there were some really interesting ways that it sort of chose to engage and not engage with the racial aspect of it that I thought was kind of fascinating. But overall, I landed on, on enjoying it more than I expected, like beat by beat throughout, if that makes sense. I thought it really stuck the landing mm-hmm. with that scene with Claudia and her family and the picture of Mimi that, that, you know, really reaffirms her place in the family. I'm not going to lie, got a little choked up about that. Although, as I have shared before, the whole feeling like an outsider in your family thing is something I'm very familiar with. So in that way, I emotionally connected to it quite a bit. But it wasn't like stand out, oh, I can't wait to read this one again. What about you? Yeah, I would say I think that the thing that sort of saved it for me was that ending scene with her family and, you know, the, the picture of, of Mimi as a 12 year old that, um, I guess I didn't say in our, in the description. Claudia ends up framing a pic, the picture of Mimi when she was 12 with Claudia's seventh grade school picture. And she says, you know, I'm going to have this forever. I'm going to hang it in my bedroom until I go to college. If I can get into college, which is what she says. And then <laughs> if she gets into college, she's going to hang it in her dorm room and she's just going to have it forever. And like, I feel like that whole thing, you know, having that sort of heart to heart with her family and the fact that her parents realized that something was off, like Claudia is spending this mm-hmm. whole dinner, like I have to talk to my parents when this is over. I have to like psych myself up. I need to just ask them, Stacy's right. I need to have this conversation. And she's just sort of acting off through the whole dinner. And before she even has an opportunity to say, mom and dad, can we sit down and chat? They already say, like, Janine, can you handle cleaning up after dinner tonight? We need to have a conversation with Claudia. And, like, they already know that something's wrong. And I really appreciated that because we do see, you know, in the books in particular, we sort of do see that sometimes her parents maybe aren't the most perceptive when things are going on with her. Mm -hmm. Um, Or at least Claudia doesn't perceive them as being perceptive. And I really appreciated that we got to see this this situation where they they knew that something was wrong and they wanted to figure out what was wrong and what they could do to help her. And their whole conversation is just so nice that the fact that mm-hmm. I, the rest of the book was just sort of whatever to me, like that really saved it for me. And I like like you said, I'm not like raring to read this one again because it was one of the best ones ever. But that being said, I did really enjoy it by the end because of that scene. I really, like I said, I really felt like that sort of saved the rest of the book. I didn't hate the rest of the book, but it was just sort of like, okay, that's, this is happening. Um, and I just really loved the way that, you know, she had that sort of moment with her family and she got to pull Mimi back in and have another connection to Mimi, even though Mimi's gone. Yeah, I really, really loved that being the resolution of it. That. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't look exactly like her parents, but she looks identical to Mimi. And that was just such a beautiful way of of continuing that special relationship mm-hmm. with them. I think overall, this one for me suffered f- because I do have an adult perspective, mm-hmm. because some of the like logic leaps and, um, you know, like ridiculous assumptions that Claudia is making throughout right. just, you, you know, from a grown person's eyes is – or, well, let's, how grown we are is debatable, <laughs> but. <laughs> Fair. From life experience perspective. Exactly. From having, you know, 20 plus years of additional experiences made a lot of that feel ridiculous. 
And at the same time, I absolutely can see how as a kid, as as a young person reading this book, that that would feel much more engaging, much more like – I think you'd be along for the ride a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I think that this one – I don't want to say suffered because it, it really didn't ruin it in any way like we're saying, but it just wasn't as exciting for us as it I think likely is for young readers. And and that's, you know, seeing as how that's the target audience, that makes total sense. <laughs> right. So I, I think one of the reasons it was a little bit less exciting for me is because it is just overall very competent, right? It has a very clear story. The A plot and the B plot tie in together thematically very well. There's, you know, like we said, a lot of – a lot less of the babysitters, but the way that they do interact – is is more connected than mm-hmm. it sometimes can be, especially with the Emily Michelle of it all. And so, I, like, really well done. I thought, like we said, they really stuck the landing with that messaging. I thought Christy had a great, you know, modeling behavior moment when she was talking with David Michael about his insecurities and jealousies around Emily Michelle. I thought it did a really good job of presenting how that can go both ways. Like Claudia feeling really jealous and neglected when Janine was getting all the attention for something good. And then David Michael feeling jealous and neglected because Emily Michelle was getting extra help. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say for something bad because right. it's not bad, but just, you know, that it can go in both directions, that it's not just one and done. It's not as simple as that. Like I said, the adoption thing is very I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly attempted to convince my brother that he was adopted and did pretty well at it for a little while. Yeah, I there was no way that I ever could have done that. My brother and I looked like twins when we were children. So I, I never – if he was adopted, I was also adopted. And then I also – I mean, this was when I was older. But like when I was in high school, it was sort of like the thing with Mimi. Like you look, if you put my mom's like high school graduation picture next to my like senior mm-hmm. picture – we could have been twins too. So there there was no opportunity for me to ever think I was adopted or to convince my brother that he might have been adopted had I had that idea. It would never have worked out. <laughs> right? I was just thinking about it and I realized I kind of lied. Not lied, but I misspoke. I didn't actually convince Dustin that he was adopted. That di- That didn't fly. But I did convince him that my parents had named him after Dustin Diamond because <laughs> they knew he was going to grow up to be a nerd like Screech. Um, so that was my... That was my next best uh, <laughs> terrible big sister moment. But whether or not it was adopted or not, feeling like the outside in your family, I think, is very, very relatable. I like that they talk about the second child syndrome and the mm-hmm. way that parents approach their children, you know, as you get more and more of them. Get? Have? <laughs> get. Get. I mean, well, technically – they got Emily Michelle. They didn't have Emily Michelle. So, but either way, that sounded wrong. <laughs> Probably a very good thing I'm not a mother and have no plans to be one. Um, but yeah, there, I think that there's a lot to really admire about, you know, the messaging that, that is being presented and definitely how it's handled, especially in comparison to, you know, the resolution of Dawn and the Wicked Stepsister, which was just such a what the fuck mm-hmm. moment. So yeah, I, I think. Especially reading it as a kid, I that's one of the things that I remembered was feeling connected to it in those ways, even if I never 
I mean, I was, I was not the first child, but I was kind of unique in that my brother had passed before I was born. So I, there was just as much of the hoopla Mm -hmm. around, you know, pictures and documentation of me, if not more in a weird way. So that, that, I mean, that was a little bit unique to my family situation, but certainly as the years went on, I mean, Jordan is the youngest now of, of, you know, four, living but five total kids and she was very clear as a kid that like uh there is not enough about me here (laughs) people you know where where was all of that so uh, that all of that is like i don't want our lack of enthusiasm or certainly my lack of enthusiasm i don't want that to indicate that i i didn't enjoy it or that there aren't some really really great things in here it just I think wasn't for us, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. So I, I think for me, the biggest thing overall that I really wanted to to get into a little bit was the racial aspect mm-hmm. of it, because I thought that was really interesting. And and I'm I, I kind of want to unpack it and process it with you because I'm not exactly sure how I'm feeling about it. So I'll give you sort of my like high level thoughts and then see where you are okay. with things. So. Overall, I thought it was an interesting choice to have Claudia be the person feeling like she could be adopted because she doesn't look like the rest of her family. I, I'm not trying to say that all Asians look alike, but not that there are other a lot of other Asian families we've ever heard or seen or have any interaction with in Stony Brook to the series so far. So like how – what is she comparing to? Does like she think she looks like someone else? I, it just sort of felt like a strange uh, – talking about that physical appearance piece of it without acknowledging the racial aspect of it. I thought that it was a interesting choice. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, that this book is about Claudia, but they talk about, you know, the the fact that she's being the one to help Emily Michelle, but never touch on the fact that, you know, maybe Emily Michelle is is connecting to Claudia in a certain way because they do have some similarities. Obviously, they're different nationalities, but I'm certain that Claudia looks closer to what Emily Michelle is used mm-hmm. to than the very, very white brewer Thomas family that she is now living with. I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. And then I just wanted to point out that, you know, like I said, we haven't really had any other representation of Asian families or talk about that at all in Stony Brook, but they brought in a new character, Timmy Shu, and he how many times did they mention him? Like seven or eight? Like it just felt very like, mm-hmm. see, there are other Asians in yeah, Stony Brook. Yeah, David Michael's new best friend. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. So those were kind of like the high level things that stood out to me. I didn't know if, if there were other things that stood out to you or if you agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the other things that I think is sort of Interesting, maybe interesting is maybe not the right word, but thought provoking. So, up until now, as you pointed out, the only Asian characters that we know are the Kishis and Emily Michelle. And Emily Michelle is adopted, and now we have Claudia thinking maybe she's also adopted. She goes and she calls the same adoption agency that that Edie and Watson use to adopt adopt um, Emily Michelle. You know, and it's just sort of like. there's just I don't even know what exactly I'm trying to say but like it just makes me feel kind of like eh that the you know like the two the two main Asian characters that we know one of whom is adopted and the other of whom 
question mark. She thinks she might be adopted. And it's like, why is it only the Asian characters that are adoption adjacent, whether actually adopted or considering that they might be adopted? I mean, because I feel like, and I also feel like an adoption storyline, because I know, like, I have friends or, like, families that I knew when I was younger. And, like, the kids that were most likely to think that they were adopted were the ones who really didn't look like the rest of their family. You know, like, our our friend right. John from um, college, he has seven brothers and sisters. And one of his sisters looks remarkably different than the rest of their family. She's not adopted, but she – could be. And like, they always joked about it. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, just going based on like, you know, cause you know, they all have brown hair. She has blonde hair. She's built differently. Like those are the types of things where it seems like it would be more likely to trigger those sorts of feelings. And like you said, we, you and I as white people maybe don't necessarily have as much of a in-depth realization about the nuances that, you know, a Japanese American person might feel in her own family. But it just the way that we've heard Claudia describe herself and the rest of her family up until this book has never been that she looks remarkably different than the rest of her family. All of the differences mm-hmm. are that she isn't interested in school in the same ways that Janine is. You know, Janine is very focused and academically motivated and, you know, advanced IQ wise and, you know, going to community college instead of just high school. And Claudia is just very interested in artistic endeavors and reading Nancy Drew books. And, you know, the way that they dress is very different. But that's the, those are sort of more, like I don't know that that would necessarily give rise to most kids thinking I was adopted. It I feel like it would have to be a very remarkable difference in the way that they look that would usually trigger this even in a 13-year-old. It just it seems interesting to me that this suddenly Claudia is like, "Oh, I look le- nothing like my family." And it's like, "Okay, well why is that just coming up now? Yeah, I think that that was the biggest thing that left me feeling a little ick about mm-hmm. it. The fact that there has been no indication up to this point that Claudia looks any different than her family. So this is new information. And we do get to acknowledge that there is actually some biological scientific data that says that people of different races, you're – your perception is different when you're looking at someone of yes. your race versus a different race. That's exactly it. That It's not that all other races look the same. It's that you are capable of picking up less mm-hmm. nuance within other racial groups. And that's that's not about, you know, judgment. That's certainly if you just take that at face value and just say, you know, all X mm-hmm. looks the same, then yes, that is racist and on you. But it's not not a judgment to acknowledge that actual, you know, perception difference. Mm -hmm. But it just felt really strange to make me start thinking about that in a children's book, Mm -hmm. right? Although I suppose, would kids really be thinking about it on that level? And then in addition, I did sort of start thinking about like, okay, if they wanted to do this plot line, is there anyone else that it wouldn't really, that it would make sense for? Like, you know, certainly not Christy being the oldest, Stacy being an only child, I mean, I guess that could make sense, but we she's got, you know, clearly a, a diabetes plotline coming up, so it, I can see why they wouldn't have gone with her. Doesn't really make sense for Mary Ann either or Dawn. So, like, if you're going just on who's the logical choice, 
it does make sense, make more sense with Claudia because she has the most not contentious, well, yes, contentious mm-hmm. relationship with her siblings. Uh, and it's much less, you know, like defined roles within the family. So I think it does make sense on that level on that, that she just feels like she does not fit in at all. And I, I think you're right that most kids go for the, the looks aspect of it, but I certainly, um, had, had those moments where I was like, man, I just do not fit in. What is, what, what's that all about? And then I met my extended family and I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> met my extended family. And then I'm around my extended family and I'm like, oh yeah, this is why, this is why I am the way that I am. So I, I don't know. I, I don't, I feel like I don't have anything intelligent mm-hmm. to say about it other than just to point it out. I, I think this is another place where I would love to hear people with, with a different experience weigh in, either if they were someone who, you know, really felt that they could have been adopted or, you know, if you're someone of um, a minority race within your city or school or whatever it is and how that factored in. Because I, I really think the biggest thing, it would be, it would feel far less obvious to me if we had heard about any other Asian people in Stony Brook at all until Emily Michelle showed up like two books ago and now Timmy Shu. So I, yeah, it, it's just a little, it, it felt a little off. Or if there hadn't been anything about how she looks compared to the rest of her family. Because I feel like, like you said, you can have those feelings just based on, I don't feel like I fit in. The rest of my family all seems very similar and I feel very different from them. Like if they had just left it at that, because we definitely have the history with that, you know? So for her, if it Mm -hmm. were that she suddenly had this feeling and like, oh, now also there's no baby pictures of me, you know? I I mean, I guess that was sort of the the inspiration was, you know, her thinking about how different she and Janine look. Although really, I I feel like even if she had said sort of like the surface level, you know, that we have different haircuts, we we dress differently, she could have still, you know, wanted to go Mm -hmm. look at baby pictures. Or it could have just been, you know, she was babysitting for Emily Michelle or one of the other myriad (laughs) toddlers that they babysit for and say, I want to see what I look like when I was a baby and just like going and looking or something, you know, like there's could have been many other catalysts for her to have these thoughts. It didn't have to be suddenly out of left field. I look nothing like my family. I must be adopted. Like, it, I think that's what what's frustrating. Yeah. She This storyline could have happened and it didn't have to be predicated on something that we had never heard, seen, touched on at all in the past. And I think that that's sort of what I think frustrated me. But yeah, I, like you, I, I don't really have anything – intelligent (laughs) anything else to say on this that is intelligent in any way shape or form just something to note and i i think it's interesting that they sort of went that route when there are other opportunities available agreed and then to i i think that's compounded really by the fact that they just don't make any mention of the fact that for emily michelle you know is there a reason that she's responding so well to claudia and they just they they just presented as Claudia is, is the one to be able to get through to her and help her find those numbers and colors. But like, it seems a pretty big oversight to not mention that there's, they've, they've talked about her culture shock. Mm-hmm. They've talked about the fact that, you know, she's moved to this new country and that's, it's um, affecting her language development skills, which makes total sense because she's now learning a completely new language on top of learning to speak at all. And I just thought it was really an interesting choice to not 
bring up at all, you know, maybe part of what Emily Michelle is responding to in Claudia is seeing a face that looks more similar Mm -hmm. to the faces that she was used to. Um, And maybe that helps with some of that fear response, you know, feeling not feeling quite as alone. I mean, I know part of that is obviously to just getting comfortable with the family and, Mm-hmm. You know, opening up and all of that ad- adoptive child normal adjustment period. And I don't know, it just seemed like a missed opportunity to to acknowledge that, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I think that's sort of it, – it's sort of difficult – like looking at this book, because obviously, you know, it's 150 pages, 15 chapters, as we've talked about before. There's only so much they can put in. But the fact that we get so little of Claudia – teaching Emily Michelle and working with her. You mm-hmm. know, we get the first babysitting job where she comes up with this idea to to teach her colors and shapes using, you know, construction paper to come, you know, matching and that sort of thing. And then we get one later after um Edie has asked Claudia to work with her consistently two times a week at her house to the point where Emily Michelle knows Janine. She calls her Nini. You know, Janine gives her a balloon when she mm-hmm. comes. So, like, clearly, Emily Michelle has been spending a lot of time at the Kishi house, and we don't get any of that. Exactly. And so, the fact that we sort of skip over all of that piece of this plot line, and also they don't even sort of touch on what you've said, you know, the fact that Emily Michelle, a Vietnamese two year old, is now getting time getting opportunity to spend time with a Japanese family, Japanese American family who look like not exactly, but you know, a lot closer than Edie and Watson and the rest of the, the Thomas Brewer clan that maybe there is something to that. And it almost feels like when they were writing this book, it was like, well, clearly Claudia needs to be the one working with Emily Michelle because we need her to have this sort of realization about maybe she's adopted and, you know, give her this opportunity to feel like, she is skilled at something, quote unquote, smart in, you know, figuring out how to teach mm-hmm. Emily Michelle and how to work with her and how to sort of connect with her in a way that the rest of their family wasn't able to do. And so I think, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's a total missed opportunity. And the reason it's a missed opportunity is because I am certain that no one even thought about that aspect of the story, which is what's so disappointing about it, because that could have been a really interesting part of that subplot with Emily Michelle and the rest of Christie's family, you know, with Claudia coming in and the whole situation. And it it's really disappointing that they didn't, you know, sort of shuffle around <laughs> the way that they focused on things in this book to give that chance for that part of the story to be a little bit more of a focus so that that piece of it specifically could be in this story at all, at least acknowledged in some way. So I think it's interesting that you thought it was just clearly they hadn't thought of it at at all because my interpretation was completely different. I My interpretation was, or my belief assumption, I guess, for for really what we're talking about, was that they were aware of that, but didn't want to go there because they thought it would feel racist to clump in, you know, all Asians look alike or all Asians XYZ. Uh, and I that for me ties back to this idea that we've talked about a number of times when we talk more specifically about Jesse, but oftentimes the way that they mention Jesse's blackness is is very like, with that implied whisper, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that by the way, she she's black. Don't worry about it. But, you know, we don't care, but other people do. And 
you know, we've noted before that there's none of that around Claudia's uh, and the Kishi family's Japanese-American status, which, again, uh, there's definitely a lot to unpack there around, you know, model minorities and and levels of of racism and, you know, all kinds of stuff that is – we're going to continue to unpack, I'm sure, as this goes along. But I, I just – I assumed it was more along those lines where they felt like they would it was more racist to bring it up than to just ignore it sort of in that 90s, you know, colorblind. If we don't mention race, it's not their way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I can see it from that perspective. I think if they were thinking along those lines, they would have figured out a way for it to not be Claudia and Emily Michelle at all. Yeah, I think you're right. Like if they were if they were concerned about that aspect of it, I think they would not just not talk about it. They would f- like have shuffled around the storyline in some way or had Claudia have this realization in some other way. And the B plot would be some, you know, random thing about Jamie Newton. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Poor Jamie Newton. We haven't seen him or Lucy in it's a long a while. time. <laughs> and I just think it's really fascinating. This is now the third or fourth book in a row that everybody is like all about the Perkinses. I don't, like, and we have heard next to nothing about Jamie Newton when at the beginning he was sort of there. Oh, and Charlotte too. Yeah, I was just going to say back. Charlotte. We've barely we seen anything with her lately. That's sort of neither here nor there. That's probably better suited for random observations. <laughs> and I was just thinking about that as you mentioned him. I didn't even really think about it as we were as I was reading, because like you said, there there wasn't a ton happening with the other kids in the first place. So it kind of didn't matter too much. I was too focused on all of the weird, weird stuff going on in the main plot line. And, and by weird stuff, I don't just mean the racial things. I also mean the like massive leaps of conclusions. Like, I mean, Claudia's like full on like swan diving off the 12 foot <laughs> board, jumping from there's a locked box in my parents' office to obviously my adoption papers are in there. And then like I've called all the hoes that live in this town in Wyoming. And because this one person didn't answer, she's definitely my adoptive mother. And I love that Stacy at that point, like Stacy is indulging mm-hmm. her for a while, but like um I think she does a good job of of, you know, helping rein Claudia back in a little bit. Like at that point, she's like, that woman could be 21. Like you you haven't even spoken right. to her. Are you really sure that that's, you know, the leap you want to take? So I I actually really liked Stacey as um, her her role within Claudia's sort of craziness throughout this. And at the same time, it makes total sense for Claudia. Like, right? It makes sense for the someone who is of her imagination, of her creativity, of her obsession with, with mm-hmm. Nancy Drews. And with someone with her level of emotion and i don't mean that in a bad way but she clearly has you know big feelings all the time that's a pretty she's not as sensitive in the way that they come out as marianne Mm -hmm. is but claudia definitely feels things you know pretty deeply so uh, that it makes sense and uh, i think this is where it suffered from you know adult perspective versus child perspective. Every step of the way, I was like, oh, come on. (laughs) Well, it was just funny because, like you're saying, every step of the way, Claudia automatically takes the most – she's always going for zebras instead of horses, basically. Exactly. Like, whatever the most out there 
potential option is, clearly that's the one that's right. Like you said, the the locked box is definitely has adoption papers in it. Um, you know, she goes to her old pediatrician's office and, you know, asks about, you know, what she was like when she was a baby and she she's doing a project for school. She's doing a lot of projects for school as her cover stories for all of these various steps of this. But, you know, she tells the the receptionist at her old pediatrician's office that she, you know, she needs to see her birth records and um, you know, for whatever project she's doing on herself for school. And, you know, she says, oh, I'll just interview my parents. My teacher loves interviews. But she jumps to the conclusion, you know, after the the receptionist tells her, oh, well, you you didn't start coming to Dr. Dellingcamp until you were two and Janine was five. So we don't have those records. Um, and, you know, Claudia's reaction is clearly she's trying to hide something. You know, like there's this whole like vast conspiracy. Yeah. And like that's always where Claudia's mind goes. And it's just – it's – Definitely the way someone who grew up really loving Nancy Drew would always sort of try to see the seedy underbelly of what's going on, even if Occam's Razor would say, you just went to a different doctor, your mom is your mom, you right. know, or your, your, your mom is your birth mom. You know, there, there's no underhanded hiding of your adoption papers and you know, and obviously, if there's not a, a birth announcement, it couldn't possibly be that maybe there was a different newspaper that my birth announcement was in because there's only one newspaper in Stony Brook now. So it has to have been in that one. And if it's not in that one, then it definitely didn't ever happen because I was not, you know, born in Stony Brook to my parents. And it's like, well, actually, there was the Stony Brook Gazette, which went out of business nine years ago. And that's where your birth announcement was, Claudia. And by the way, I have the actual newspaper in our office. And so it's just sort of funny that like, she didn't find that. And I think her mom even says it's on my desk in my office. <laughs> So it's like Claudia yeah. is ruffling through all of this stuff and she doesn't find – or I guess maybe she did see the newspaper, but because obviously the birth announcements are not you know front and center on the front page, she didn't even think about it. But I, I like talking through this now, it like entertains me even more that like the evidence was in plain sight the whole time and Claudia is jumping to all right. these conclusions and, you know – scouring through all of these drawers and locked boxes and, you know, going looking at microfiche at the library. <laughs> and, you know, it, it really is too bad that she had this this whole situation happen after Mimi passed away. Because as she points out, if Mimi had been there, she could have just talked to Mimi immediately. And Mimi would have told her the truth and she wouldn't have had to worry about it. But because Mimi's not there, she just assumes that her parents are lying. And she can't possibly talk to them because they're just going to continue to lie. And it's too much. And it, it's just it's just another reason why we miss Mimi so, so much. Yeah, Mimi being such an integral part of the conclusion of it. And, and you're exactly right. The fact that She's really the impetus of the plot in a way because this, as you pointed out, this wouldn't have happened at all mm -hmm. if Mimi were still alive because it would have been, you know, a two second, you know, I'm nothing like my family. Am I adopted? And Mimi would laugh and say no and, you know, show pictures in the end. Mm -hmm. So it's really lovely. And I think it makes more sense now. You know, we, when we started this, we were so surprised at how early we lost mm -hmm. Mimi. And I think that that's largely because she does say, stay such a strong presence for Claudia's storyline and Claudia's development that we really include her in it where it, it almost, I mean, it's obviously about her absence. So it's not that it doesn't feel like she's gone, but she does stay a major mm -hmm. presence, even though she's technically no longer there. Speaking of Claudia's development, the one thing that really did kind of 
not annoy me, that might be a little bit extreme, but kind of made me sigh a little bit, is this, you know, very sitcom-y reset of the Claudia-Janine relationship yep. at every book. Like, every book they sort of come together and they they bond or they have a better understanding of each other. And then the next book, we're right back where we started with, you know, being resentful and uh, – I, I mean, know. I can kind of understand it because – as a kid, there were definitely times when my brother and I got along really well, and then all of a sudden, one of us would get annoyed with the other one, and then we would be, you know, fighting like cats and dogs. So, like, from that perspective, I don't totally hate it, but it really does feel like it only happens when there's a plot reason. Like, oh, Claudia mm-hmm. needs to be upset that Janine is getting an award at school for being so smart and so successful in her academic achievements. And so she needs to be angry about that, and so she's going to be resentful, and all of the things that she's learned in the past and that Janine has learned in the past just sort of fall by the wayside because we need this conflict to happen. And it just, like, from a realistic perspective, you're not going to have, like, a continuous trajectory of growth as a child with your siblings. Right. But from a book reader perspective, it's like, why does it always have to be – and now Claudia hates Janine again. And then by the end of the book, like, hey, let's go yeah. make dinner together for mom and dad because we love each other. Like, it's frustrating. Yeah, I think that was the thing that frustrated me the most is that, like, let's go make dinner together beat. I think we've had that same mm-hmm. beat, like, two different books, that specific one as being the resolution. And that that just felt like, okay, yep. we did this. Can't we move it in a, a, a slightly different direction? And, and I think you're right that it isn't a continuous improvement, but it would be nice to see if, if there was some element of, you know, two steps mm-hmm. forward, one step back, or even one step forward, two steps back, you know, however that works. Yeah. But Or even any acknowledgement at all. I think I think that's the thing that's yes, so frustrating. That's what it's, I was going to say. It's not even like it's two steps forward, one step back or anything. It's like it's always just sort of – like you said at the beginning of this part of the conversation, it's just reset every single time back to square one. There's no sort of acknowledgement. And especially with the fact that we end this story with so much focus on Mimi and there's no callback to you know, the, the relationship mm-hmm. growth that Janine and, and Claudia had when Mimi passed away. You know, that – there's a very clear yep. link in that story and this story and the fact that there's really not even an acknowledgement like, you know, calling back to that, that, you know, when Mimi passed away, Janine and I came together similarly to how we're doing now to make dinner for our parents or whatever. Like, it's just completely forgotten. And I guess, again, this goes back to the fact that these books are very, you know, regimented and each one can, needs to sort of stand on its own. But it just – it gets a little frustrating to have the same beats happen in certain ways. Obviously, not every single book is exactly the same, but some of these sort of character interactions and relationships being reset every time we go back to them, it gets a little repetitive and a little bit frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a perfect, perfect explanation that it is that – the, the lack of acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of lack of acknowledgement, I, I was about to say, well, maybe that goes back to, we, you know, having ghostwriters, but we are still, <laughs> this is Anna M. Martin. <laughs> yep. um, I neglected to mention that at the beginning. Um, this one was released in April 1990. So I thought actually that was a really important thing to note because as you mentioned, again, this is kind of, I'm getting ahead of myself in random observations, but it, we're here. So this came out in 1990 and they're talking about the uh, the book 
specifically that they're talking about is by Lois Lowry. And they don't, I was like, and they're, and they're not going to mention, you know, the giver, like, isn't that, I, I would think that they would immediately be like, oh yeah, we love the giver. Well, I looked it up. Did you realize that the giver didn't come out until 1993? I did not. That was somehow a book that I never read when I was a child. So timing-wise, would never have really? thought of anything. Yeah. So for me, Lois Lowry is Number of the Stars. Yeah. Number of the Stars is the other one. That would have come out already, but it would have been really recent. Okay. That was 89. So like maybe it wasn't even fully out yet because yes, Number of the Stars was definitely one of my favorites. I was very fascinated by the mm-hmm. Holocaust. I think I just could not wrap my head around yep. that concept. And so I wanted to know more and more about it. And The Giver was hugely impactful book for me as a kid. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I thought it was one of those like classics that had been around since like the oh, 70s. Yeah. No idea why I made that assumption, <laughs> but I did. It, it, but it really surprised me that it was contemporary mm-hmm. to the time that I was reading it. So I, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I had never read this one. The, what is it called? Say Goodbye and Move On or Find a Stranger, Say Goodbye which is very overwrought for a book about adoption. But I had not read that one. I had not. The thing that was interesting, maybe not interesting, sort of random when I was reading this. So I read a book, I think it's Lois Duncan, whose daughter was murdered. And she wrote a book called Who Killed My Daughter. So like, that's where my my mind went. I obviously reading this book, I knew it was not the same book and it was not the same author. But like, that was the like, you know, nonfiction by a fiction writer that I knew and loved as a child that I had read. So, like, that's where I was, like, thinking. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Find a Stranger, Say Goodbye is fiction. Oh, okay. Well, I guess to me, it felt like the way that Stacy was describing it. I think that's what it was, is because to me, it sounded similar to Lois Duncan going through the whole situation of like researching and, you know, investigating her daughter's murder and trying to solve it when the police couldn't. And so to me, this story about this, you know, adopted girl looking for her birth mother, it felt like nonfiction to me. So I just assumed it was nonfiction. (laughs) Gotcha. See, and I went straight to the classic face on the milk carton. Like when I think about, you know, adoption stories and, you know, finding your birth family and like, unpacking all that to me that's immediately where i go to although that was a far more dramatic story Mm -hmm. than you know just trying to reconnect with your birth family but i did really want to point out that i i'm going to be very curious to see how they do this plot line either in the graphic novels or the show or both if if we get there because such a big thing is made out of how difficult mm-hmm. it is to do the research. And she's like, how am I going to find this, these people's number? And I was like, well, now that's like Google. The, all of the, her weeks long research would take, I mean, days, hours right. even, you know, you pull up the newspaper, look in their birth of announcement history page and done. You don't microfiche and all of that and yellow pages and mm-hmm. white pages <laughs> have really gone the way of the dodo bird. Well, and like one of the birth announcements there's a a name and an address but when they look that family up in the phone book their number's unlisted so so claudia just goes to the house and asks the current resident you know do oh do you know this family i you know i I think they have a daughter my age that i was friends with when i was little i'm looking for her and then that woman happens to have their new phone number (laughs) like the world is a very different place 
actually, that's one of those tropes that shows up more often than you would think because it's one of my pet peeves. It's a pretty common thing in books and movies and TV shows that someone will go to a place and be like, oh, are they no longer living here? And they're like, yeah, I think I have a piece of their mail or they happen to leave a forwarding number. And I'm like, is that a thing that actually happens? I know nothing about the people who owned my parents' house before. I mean, granted, I was five when this process was happening, but like my recollection is they were gone already. Like we had no real interaction with them other than signing some papers. I don't know that they even like would remember their name, let alone <laughs> 10 years, 13 years later. Oh, sure, I have a forwarding number for them. Here's the really funny thing. I I personally am like one of the exceptions that proves the rule. The people that used to live in our house moved to another house in our neighborhood. So we have like we've oh, gotten so like funny. packages for them. It's been an, obviously quite a long time cuz we've lived here 10 years now. But like when we first moved here, you know, they got a couple packages and we just like went and dropped them off at their house <laughs> because we knew where they lived. So it's very weird because I I agree. Whenever that trope shows up, even someone who has lived that experience, I'm like, come on. Or even, you know, like Law and Order when it's like, oh, you know, they show up at the building and like the landlord mm-hmm. knows everything about the resident of the apartment they're looking at and it's like no landlord have I have ever had knew anything about me. Like they would, you know, if yeah. if they had their like roster of apartments or whatever, they would probably know like my name, but they wouldn't know like, oh yeah, you know, she and her boyfriend used to fight a lot or like, oh, she always throws out too much trash or, you know, she, I don't even know. Like, you know, it, it seems like they kept to themselves. They were quiet and like didn't really interact much with the building. And I'm like, that describes right. everybody who lives in an apartment. <laughs> exactly. Ever. Like these landlords having all this information on you know, their residents on these TV shows or people having forwarding information or like knowing anything about the people that lived there before them. It's like, okay. I mean, it's convenient for the story, but how realistic is that? Right. And I mean, I'm I'm certain that there are some apartment complexes or, you know, neighborhoods like that where everybody does know each other a lot. But, you know, we're Midwestern. And if, if that's the stereotype about, you know, neighborly Midwesterns, Midwesterners, and I... I know the dogs' names of the people who live around me, but, like, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any other big ideas? I, I think, uh, for me, and this is the reason I really connected with it, was that that feeling out of place. Like I said, I, I've shared that that is, is something that I'm familiar with, even though I never went to, I'm adopted, just, you know, having that feeling of the odd person out. And, and so that resolution really sort of tugged the heartstrings for me. And especially around, like I said, I think they did a really, really nice job of of talking about how when you're in a family, sibling rivalry can really show up when someone is getting attention, either good attention, bad attention. It doesn't really matter. That can make other members of the family feel left mm-hmm. out. And I... I actually really responded at the very beginning of the book when Claudia is being so pouty about how, man, Janine gets an award and a cake. And I actually kind of appreciated that her parents didn't try to pander Mm -hmm. to Claudia because I've actually been on the the flip side of that more than once where, like, it was celebrating something about me and – 
it's so dumb even looking back on it, but it like it, w- it was hurtful in the moment. It was my grad school graduation and my family came up and we ordered my favorite cupcakes. And then at the end of the, the party, when everybody's getting ready to drive back to Cincinnati, my mom, my mom gave my cupcakes to my brother because he had driven so far. And I'm like, oh, oh I, I was the one <laughs> who got the are, degree. It's my party. <laughs> right. And like, Again, it's so petty, such annoying family bullshit. It's not actually something that like – but it is, you know, it, I – that's all I could think of during that scene. I was like, well, what do you want them to do, Claudia? Like give you a participation cake? <laughs> and some would say that that's what happened to our generation and where we went wrong. But it, it did – I understand, and especially looking at it from an adult perspective, I really feel for the parents, like how to balance that and make sure that you are celebrating the achievements of one child, even if you know that that's touchy for another one. How do you balance that? Uh, You know, how do you deal with Emily's uh, special needs? Makes it sound so much more dramatic, but but literal special additional Mm -hmm. needs coming into the family and how that, you know, can affect especially the younger ones. I mentioned briefly earlier, Christy has a really great modeling moment with David Michael having that conversation where she was like, yeah, you know, I'm sometimes jealous too. And they even point out that like, she didn't accuse David Michael of being jealous. She claimed that emotion Mm -hmm. first to make it okay for him. And then you know, talked about the fact that, well, if he really needed help with something, wouldn't you want mom and dad to, you know, ha- put that focus on you so that you could get the help you need? And that's what they're doing for Emily Michelle. So I really actually thought mm-hmm. they handled that really, really nicely. And it it really did uh, affirm for me that, yeah, I have no desire to parent, especially multiple <laughs> children and like how to balance that. No, thank you. That seems complicated. And one of those situations where Whatever you do, somebody's going to be angry with you, and I'm way too much of a people pleaser. <laughs> I just have to go back for a second, talking about you know Janine getting a cake for you know to celebrate her big award. One thing that I think was a little bit frustrating was so Claudia is making dinner that night, and she makes this gorgeous salad that is okay. So it's she even calls it an absolutely gorgeous salad. So she made an absolutely gorgeous salad to go with supper. I made radish roses and arranged carrot sticks and slices of hard-boiled eggs to look like the sun. It was a work of art. It was a culinary masterpiece. I know what culinary means, believe it or not. It means having to do with cooking, which like, that's great. And I'm like, she, she had been feeling down. She'd been feeling frustrated. And so she channeled that into something creative and fun to have with dinner. And her mom Basically, is like, oh, that's so nice. You made that for Janine without even sort of acknowledging what how beautiful it was and how great it is that Claudia was able to do that. And like that, what I think was even more like frustrating in that moment was obviously, yes, you want to have a cake to celebrate Janine, but you also are sort of completely discounting Claudia's skills in this moment by just glossing over it and being like, oh, isn't that nice you did that for Janine rather than being like, Claudia, that's beautiful. I can't believe you were able to do that with just, you know, radishes and carrot sticks and eggs. I think that's a really good point that they just immediately made that achievement of Claudia's about Janine as well. So you're right. That definitely was, I think I was bringing too much of my own (laughs) cupcake cake baggage to the table uh, during during that dinner scene. I did really love though Because, like, I don't know what it was like at your school, but at my school, educational achievements and intellectual achievements were not really recognized in any meaningful way. 
And so I really appreciated that, you know, this this award ceremony that they all go to at the beginning of the book where Janine is one of many kids getting awards. Obviously, her award is the biggest award, and she's the first person in 10 years to get it and only the second person ever to get it. Like, I thought that was really cool that this school was, like, focusing on that. And I understand it maybe is a little bit inflated because we needed it to be something to for Claudia to sort of react to. But I really liked that there was some acknowledgement of the smart kids, <laughs> which is so like, that's my personal thing. Like I, I did a lot of smart kid things and I got zero accolades for them when I was in high school because I was a nerd. You are certainly not wrong. I definitely had questions around that as well because, uh, well, first of all, the, I, it's still unclear to me what exactly Janine's award was. There was no explanation, and why is she only the second person ever to get it? Like, yeah, because the the sort of speech when she's introduced is like she does a lot of classes here, and she's also taking classes at the community college. Which, like, I'm certain there are other kids that are doing that too. So it's like, what about Janine in particular is so great? Yeah, like, what are the criteria mm-hmm. for this award that it is so rare that people get it? So that was a little strange. I thought that the fact that it was happening in the middle of the school day yeah. was odd. Like, we – there was a little bit more recognition. I'm, I'm trying to think. So my high school definitely, because my high school was very, very academically minded. It was – well, I, I think the easiest way to explain is that we did not have class rankings. They had to out – not outlaw, but they had to get rid of defined class rankings because girls were literally sabotaging each other in order to increase their rank. Like, I think the big scandal was one girl stole a test from a teacher and planted it in another girl's locker. To, yeah. So so there was definitely a lot of academic acknowledgement in the in my high school. But for grade school, not at all. Uh, I, except for at graduation in eighth grade when they announced, you know, who got scholarships to to area high schools or like there were a couple of academic awards there that that like overall gave. But it was certainly not a special award ceremony in the middle of the school year, in the middle of the day that like people took off for mm-hmm. and reporters were there. <laughs> and I, again, I fully acknowledge that I went to a very strange high school. So, <laughs> Well, any other big ticket ideas or we want to move on to random observations to start wrapping this one up. We've kind of been on that random observation tip for a minute here. There were just a couple of of little things that I had pulled out. The one I really, that, that gets more and more baffling to me is the fact that Claudia's parents, her mother being a librarian, is is so against Nancy Drew. Like that just to me, I mean, my cousin's a librarian. We're hoping to have her on as a guest at one point. And her whole thing is she doesn't care what you're reading as Mm -hmm. long as you're reading and engaging in books and whether that's graphic novels or whether that's, you know, whatever it is, the the storytelling, the reading aspect of what's important. And so it just seems like a really, really strange detail that a librarian would be like, no, don't read that, especially if she's not going to read anything else. You know what I mean? It just seems an odd, discouraging thing. The other thing that really stood out for me a lot this time, especially after our conversation with Jen around Claudia and ADHD. Um, so full disclosure, that conversation with her really sparked some additional 
self-reflection for me around my own diagnosis and how how I've been engaging with my ADHD uh, for the last five or six years. And, and really, it's been fascinating and illuminating. And certainly, the more I've learned about ADHD overall, what how how that field of knowledge is developing and and how it shows up especially in girls more and more of of what I'm seeing the behaviors in Claudia are really really resonating in that way. So, I owe Jen a big thank you for flipping that that switch. And I think it also really contributes to a lot of the ways that I did connect with Claudia so much that that a lot of those things really stuck out for me the and the one that has really been sort of the biggest thing that i've been talking about in my own therapy and really looking at is this idea of hyper focus and when you get fixated on something you you know you can't let it go and it doesn't necessarily have to be a big thing it can just be you know if i'm start playing around a candy crush if that happens to be engage my hyper focus, then I can, you know, lose three hours to doing that. Or and and so that, especially with Claudia talking about, you know, the way she works really hard when it's something that's meaningful to her, when it's something that she enjoys, that absolutely resonated on that um on that level. So I thought that was interesting and I wanted to call mm-hmm. that out and Continue to thank Jen because, yeah, I mean, this is why we bring on guests, get those different <laughs> perspectives. Yep, definitely. I think I only had a couple. The first one is just more good advice from our best best friend in the Babysitter's Club, Dawn. You know, when she's babysitting for Emily Michelle and she and Christy sort of have a heart-to-heart as she's wrapping up her babysitting job. And, you know, Dawn basically just tells Christy, you know, worrying doesn't solve problems because Christy's very worried about everything that's going on with Emily Michelle and that she's not doing enough and that everyone in their family isn't doing enough. And she just keeps worrying and worrying. And Dawn sort of tells her worrying doesn't solve problems. Like, let's start to think about some things or you start to think about some things or whatever. And I think that it it's just nice when you get that sort of moment from Dawn or from whoever in these books. It's just, it's almost a throwaway, mm-hmm. but it sort of resonates. I, I, I think, I mean, I don't remember that line when I was a kid necessarily, but like, I do feel like that's something that probably would have stuck with me and probably did because I, I still feel that way today is, you know, obviously I, I can't stop myself from worrying about things, but you can't just worry. You have to sort of come up with a plan. And if you can't figure mm-hmm. out a way to sort of move past it, because worrying Worrying doesn't solve problems. It just it it's it just creates more stress and anxiety, and that's not helpful. I mean, obviously there are plenty of things you can try to do, and some people are not able to just sort of move past things, quote unquote. But like, you need to do what you need to do for yourself to hopefully move past things in the way that you can, or whether that's therapy or medication or meditating or taking extra naps, I don't know, <laughs> eating more candy, whatever yeah. whatever works for you. But don't just sit there worrying and stewing in your problems because it's not going to help you and it's not going to help solve whatever that problem is. So I just really liked that. I did too. And I, I just want to point out, I think it's really interesting and, and I want to make a note to come back to this when we do talk about Secret of Susan because I, I've found a little bit of thematic resonance in how Christy approaches what she sees as problems. Mm -hmm. 
That's one of the more problematic aspects of what we're going to get into when we talk about Secret of Susan is Christie's whole attitude is, how do I fix this? And I I felt that very much so with her attitude toward um, Emily Michelle, that it was a problem to be fixed mm-hmm. and that there, that she needed to be doing more or it was going to be a bigger, bigger problem. So I, I think that, that your takeaway is really interesting there. So I... I, I'd love to continue to track that behavior for mm-hmm. Christy, whether that's something that she continues to, you know, we know she's a bit of a worrier and a problem solver. And, you know, what does it look like when it's a problem that she can't immediately mm-hmm. solve? Or even a problem that isn't hers to solve. Yeah, very, yeah. very true. Um, okay, and then my last thing, and this is sort of from one of the few sort of tangents in this book, you know, unrelated babysitting jobs, aside from the fact that it's where Stacy finds the Lois Lowry book to tell Claudia about. But when she's babysitting for the Parkinses, and I feel like this is sort of another example of how affluent Stony Brook is. So when Gabby and Mariah are, you know, being excited that Stacy's there and their mom is about to leave. They tell their mom that they want to quote unquote cook with real ingredients. And Stacy's sort of like, I don't know what that means. Like what, what are they allowed to do? What is like, what is this adventure that I'm about to be put on? And so Mrs. Perkins says this, Oh, the girls can use anything they find in the kitchen, milk, flour, chocolate chips, eggs, whatever, and concoct something. Just do me two favors. Make a list of any ingredients they use up so I can replace them and keep an eye on what they put in their creation. Don't let them eat it if it looks too awful. Like the fact that Mrs. Perkins is just like, have at it with the pantry and the fridge, like make whatever you want. Like I, it doesn't matter what I have planned for dinner for the rest of the week. It doesn't matter that I, Mm -hmm. how much it's going to cost to replace all these things. Like it's a very cute idea and they end up somehow actually making chocolate chip cookies without following a recipe, which the baker in me is like, okay, there's no way that those are edible, but that's fine. But just the fact that it's like, yeah, let them let them run wild in the kitchen and as long as they clean up the mess and you tell me what I need to buy more of, it's fine. Like, what? That's crazy. Yeah, you're right that that is such a thing that like apparently that is not an issue at all to just replace – I mean, I guess eggs and milk maybe probably weren't as expensive, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. But still, it you know – they didn't give any restrictions. What if they had had like a right. steak that, you know, anyway, that's interesting. I didn't even think of it from that perspective. But yeah, that uh, the continued lack of economic awareness in these books is is pretty uh, par yeah. for the course. There was one last thing before we go into fashion, because I know Claudia's got some good descriptions that I noted that uh, I, I didn't bring up when we were first having that conversation around the Kishi's Japanese identity. Claudia was talking and introducing her family, including Russ and Peaches. And she talks about how Mimi gave her mom and Peaches Japanese names and Russ nicknamed her Peaches. And I realized, have we ever learned Mr. or Mrs. Kishi's actual first name? I don't think so. Because I know that we've talked about the fact that Peaches is a nickname, obviously, and we talked about the fact that, you know, Russ just gave her that instead of calling her by her given name. But I, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about the fact that, you know, for all the parent names that we know in these books, you know, Sharon, Richard, Edie, Watson, I guess we don't really know the McGill's names either. But regardless, we 
definitely don't know Mr. or Mrs. Kishi's names or Peach's real name, which is interesting and unsurprising given the track record here. But yeah, that, that is, I like that you called that out because I, I, I don't think I would like specifically had that thought. So that, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just something to, to another interesting thing to think about. You're right though. I don't know if we ever, I want to say we did learn Stacy's parents' names at one point, but I, I'm not thinking of them. There certainly are less. And Stacy's parents get referenced more in relation to Stacy. They're much less uh, characters yeah, in the books. That's true. Whereas the Kishis definitely are, you know, her, her parents are definitely as active participants as Richard and Sharon and Edie mm-hmm. and Watson. So that's, you know, I I don't know if they just didn't want to go there or if they thought that'd be too much for kids, but I think it would have been a great mm-hmm. learning experience and, you know, could open up some additional conversation, like you said, that we we had around, you know, Russ just being like, screw it, I'm calling her peaches. <laughs> and, and, you know, why and how Claudia's parents decided to give them more Americanized names versus Japanese names. Mm-hmm. In any case, just one last thing to call out. So that was the end of my random observations. Yeah, I think all that is left is some fashion, which there actually wasn't that much great fashion in this one, which was disappointing because it's a Claudia book. But we do have a little bit. So we've got Janine and Claudia at that uh, award ceremony. So for instance, that day, Janine was wearing one of her usual plain outfits, a long pleated plaid skirt, a white shirt with a round collar, stockings, and blue heels. Her hair is short and cut in a page voice, so she can't do much with it. I, on the other hand, was dressed in one of my usual wild outfits, a very short black skirt, an oversized white shirt with bright pink and turquoise poodles painted on it, flat turquoise shoes with ankle straps, and a ton of jewelry, including dangly poodle earrings. My long hair was swept to one side in a high ponytail held in place with huge pink barrette pretty good yeah i did appreciate though that and it's sort of glossed over but janine was asking for claudia's advice all morning about what she should wear that day for this celebration of her and claudia was very dismissive of her because to her janine's clothes all look the same and they're all so boring and i guess it sort of is opposed to what we were saying earlier because janine is clearly trying to engage with her sister who she acknowledges dress as well and this is something that she's usually interested in so she's trying to like get her advice and get her help and claudia could not possibly be bothered so i I just that's just like i just realized that that she actually was trying yeah that's really true i and and claudia just like i thought that was really Mm -hmm. rude the way that claudia handled it i it was i think it makes sense in terms of where we wanted to get claudia's initial you know emotional Mm -hmm. state with everything that it's it's she does make it clear that the reason she doesn't want to really help Janine is that she's resentful right. of the attention and the award that Janine is getting. So so that makes sense, but you're right. At least Janine was starting from a better yeah. place. And I, I think to be fair, our criticism of where they end up is really all about Claudia or how they reset reset, if you will, is all That's about true. Claudia because we really get like nothing from Janine in this in this book you know she sulks a little when her parents say do the dishes so we can talk to claudia and she seems embarrassed by the attention for the award 
and wants to put the money away for college. And Claudia reads both of those things with, like, mm-hmm. scorn. So I, I think we're not really seeing any of Janine's emotional journey. In fact, Janine is pretty incidental. She's more just a catalyst for Claudia to feel resentful and left yeah. out and and trying to find her place in the family. Definitely. Um, you know, for the lack of <laughs> descriptions in this book, we, of course, get Christy's standard uniform <laughs> again. Like, right? she'd look even better if she took some interest in her clothes. But Christy wears practically the same outfit day in and day out. Jeans, a turtleneck, running shoes, and if the weather is cold, a sweater. Sometimes she wears her Crusher's t-shirt instead of the turtleneck, and often she wears this baseball cap with a collie on it. The Thomases used to have a collie, Louie, but he died, which is why they got Shannon. Like, give me some some Stacy outfits. Give me some more Claudia outfits. It's just, it's not my favorite when we get no fashion. <laughs> You know what? I I felt like we were going to get all of this fashion because it, it starts off mm-hmm. so strong with the descriptions of, you know, what they're wearing to that event. And then I guess I just didn't realize that it they never really went there again. I do just want to note there is another little bit of an interesting through line that I noticed between Christy and the Secret of Susan that I don't know that we'll have a lot of time because we've got bigger fish to fry in that book, but that does sort of tie into this description of her. So Claudia talks about how Christy is actually really pretty if she just put in a little bit more effort into her appearance, which, side note, gross. Like, just, I I hate that, Mm -hmm. you know. You'd be pretty if blah, 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 bullshit. And there hadn't been a really a lot of conversation about, you know, pretty versus not pretty, I guess. Like, they talk about Claudia's gorgeous hair and great complexion. And Stacy, you know, it always looks so elegant and sophisticated. But they sort of never really talked about, like, beauty in that way before. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed, because it stood out a lot for me in Christie's narration and Christie's descriptions in Secret of Susan, where how pretty they were was absolutely a, like, a a big thing that she was talking mm-hmm. about. And granted, you know, she doesn't wouldn't have as much to say about their clothing and their fashion because it is Christy and she has a uniform. And it just really stood out to me that that was the first time that there was a really big emphasis in mm-hmm. that, on that, and Christy not seeing herself that way. And then Claudia specifically calling it out here. So I, I don't know if there's that's going somewhere, but I just, you know, I, I thought I would mention that because – there's so much to unpack in The Secret of Susan. It's likely we, we weren't mm-hmm. going to get into too big of a conversation about that. So just thought I would mention it here. That is a good thing to point out because there are some specific things that are around that. I think we'll touch on at least one of them, but we won't get into the whole overarching prettiness plot. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, do you have any final crazy thoughts or any other final club business? No, let's just take a minute to look at what's coming next and see if we've got any predictions or memories. Oh, right, predictions. <laughs> <laughs> so some actual final club business. <laughs> yes, actually. Uh, so the next book is Marianne and Too Many Boys. Not ringing a bell, uh, especially not having seen the cover. Same. I was just going to say the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I've been purposefully not looking at the covers because I don't want to – I want my memories to be based solely on the titles. And this one is ringing exactly. zero bells as well. <laughs> so, I, I mean, the obvious thing to me as a prediction would be that 
you know, she gets another potential love interest or somebody else also has a crush on her and it there's, you know, some kind of love triangle in terms of the too many boys. But I am going to go on a limb and say it's not that. And it is instead that Marianne is going to be babysitting uh, the Hobarts more, this new family of three boys that are have started bonding with the, the Pike triplets and Nikki and the sort of difference of what it's like to babysit when it's, you know, a big group of boys of varying ages from, you know, six or seven up to 11, mm-hmm. 12. Because as someone who grew up with very rowdy brothers, there's very much a difference. <laughs> so that's going to be my prediction is that she's she's babysitting a whole bunch of boys and being the sweet, sensitive, girly, for lack of a better term, girl that she is, is going to have a little bit of culture shock with with her babysitting charges. Okay. Well, that's where I was initially going to go. So I'm going to change mine <laughs> because we can't have the same okay. one. Because I was also thinking, especially since they now live in her old house. But regardless, I'm mm-hmm. going to say that they are having a Sadie Hawkins dance at school and all of the girls in the Ooh. Babysitter's Club are like up in arms about who they're going to ask, which boys they're going to ask, which boys have already been asked. And Marianne's, you know, above it all because she already has Logan. She doesn't have to worry about it. And so the too many boys is that all of her friends are focused on too many boys and she – doesn't get enough attention or something. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I, As you were saying that, I there's definitely a Sadie Hawkins at some point this year because I, I have vivid memories of drama around asking people, but I don't remember who or or what exactly that plays out as. And then I also know that at some point, Marianne and Logan do break up. So – you know, my first instinct could have been more more correct. I'm not sure when mm-hmm. that happens or how long they're broken up. I don't remember what causes them to break up or why they get back together. But I'm going to throw that out there as an as a third wild card. Okay, option. I like <laughs> since, it. Since I did steal your <laughs> initial idea. Well, I guess we'll just have to find out in two weeks who's correct and. Maybe both of us are correct and both or both of us are wrong. Well, we'll find out. We didn't we didn't swing quite as much for the fences this time, so it might not be quite as hilarious to find out who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think we both got a little burned on the secret of season when we we went pretty hard yeah. uh on our predictions and to have it go so far in the opposite direction was was a bit of a okay, maybe we need to rein it in just right. like, <laughs> just lightly. Right. Okay, well, so now Is there any other Final Club business? Absolutely. So we would love to hear from all of you. We have lots of ways that you can reach us. There's our Instagram and Twitter at GenerationBSC. If that is not enough space for you to share your thoughts and feelings, feel free to email us at GenerationBSC at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts and, and talk to you that way as well. So we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so with that, I'm Kate Vlasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to your friends.